You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. All right, well, um, I guess we'll start by doing a little praying, and then, uh, yeah, then we can get to talking. Sound good? Um, All right, let's pray together. Lord, thanks for bringing us here together today. Thanks for preserving your word in the prophet Jonah for us. Thank you for teaching us about who we are and about who you are. Lord, we uh, we pray that those truths would uh, really sit down deep in our hearts today as we leave this place, that we would um, be more bent to worship you uh, and glorify your name. In your son Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So, Jonah 2 today. Um, Cameron did Jonah 1 last week, and so I guess by way of review, uh, it might be nice to just sort of talk about who Jonah was, what he did, and then move on to Jonah chapter 2. How I see this going is we will probably just walk through Jonah 2 verse by verse, and that should take maybe like 20 or so minutes, and we'll talk about what that means for us, what that means for our kids, what that means for our day-to-day lives and stuff, and then... Hopefully at the end we'll have five or ten minutes for questions um, and we'll be able to move from there. Um, Get my notes out. Um, Okay, so um, if you remember from last week or if you've just read Jonah before, Jonah is a prophet to the southern half of Israel. He is the son of Amittai, as we read in Jonah 1.1. And he is sent by God to go to Nineveh preach to the Ninevites in Assyria, and try to uh, preach the gospel to them um, in its Old Testament form, and to bring them to the Lord. And if you remember, Jonah is like not super excited about this prospect, right? So God says, go to Nineveh and preach to the Ninevites, and the first thing Jonah does is go, just in the completely opposite direction. Um, He heads to Tarshish which is in modern-day Spain, and it's about as far away from Nineveh as you could possibly get. Um, And so Jonah bails. He tries to escape from God's presence specifically and God's calling on his life more generally. Um, And so he's on the boat, headed west, and things start to go wild, right? The water gets very choppy. Um, It is like very deadliest catch-esque on the sea at this point. And the sailors that Jonah is with say, like, let's just, like, pray to all our different gods, right? And see if, like, one of them cashes in and, like, maybe this will work. And so they pray and they pray and nothing happens. And then they run down to the hull of the boat to get Jonah up, right? Because none of the other gods have worked Maybe this one um, will be good. We'll just cover all our bases. And so they wake Jonah up, and Jonah says, This is on me. God asked me to go to Nineveh. Here we are headed to Tarshish. The only way for this to get better for you guys is if I walk the plank, right? And so Jonah goes into the water, and that's where we sort of leave chapter 1 at, and then we move into chapter 2, where uh, Jonah of big fish fame Get swallowed. So we'll go ahead and I'll read Jonah 2. It's 10 verses, so it shouldn't take too much. Um, and y'all can just listen or follow along if you have a Bible on you. 
Jonah 2, verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up, brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. The word of the Lord. Sort of unceremonious end to Jonah's song there, right? The Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah. Um, Okay, so Jonah is stuck inside the whale. This is a dire situation for Jonah, right? He's floating around inside of a big fish. Um, But before we get started, it's probably helpful to remember that this whale is a mercy from God. This is a gracious gift to Jonah because he was cast into the sea, and the whale is the vessel by which God will save Jonah. Um, So we'll start in verses 2 and 3 especially where Jonah says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Um, So verses 2 and 3 are spoken mostly with a view to hindsight. I think Jonah at this point is in the belly of the whale, and he's sort of remembering the situation he was in before he got there, being tossed about in the water, in the sea, uh, close to certain death. Um, And in verse 2 and 3, verses 2 and 3, he said, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, out of the belly of Sheol I cried. Now, this is important because, remember, when Jonah starts to flee, he's fleeing from the presence of God, right? He's fleeing from the presence of an omnipresent God. And when he finds himself in the ocean, after having jumped off the boat, he says, I am headed to Sheol, right? He's sinking down through the water. Things are getting darker and darker. Pressure's probably building around him. And the irony of the situation is this Jonah, who has tried so hard to escape the presence of God, now feels as if he really is running out of the presence of God, right? Sheol is a word that's used in the Old Testament to mean a bunch of different things. But in this situation, what Jonah is saying is that he feels like he is literally being taken away from the presence of God, right? And this is a a much more terrifying prospect for him than he probably thought it was when he stowed away on that boat for Tarshish. Um, And so we see this theme of Jonah sort of running from the presence of God and then at the same time when he feels like he's moving away from it, really treasuring that presence and wishing that it was still there. Um, Another thing that we see in verses 2 and 3 and then through the rest of chapter 2 and the rest of the book of Jonah in general is an emphasis on God's authority and God's power 
to do what he deems right. Right. So um, in verse 3, Jonah very candidly says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. Right. It is God who sent Jonah hurtling into the water. It's God who called Jonah to go to Nineveh. It's God who knew that Jonah would stow away on this boat. And it's God who sent Jonah into the water, even though Jonah himself hopped over the side of the boat. Um, And so that's something that will come up over and over again over the course of Jonah chapter 2. What's more, in verse 3, we read about waves and billows that are crashing over Jonah, these very graphic descriptions of what exactly the experience of being lost at sea is like. And the Hebrew word nahar generally means river, and it's used in this context as well. In Psalm 69, the same word talks about the experience of drowning, right? So Jonah is literally dying as time goes by here um, in the water. We... um, we took our kids, the junior high kids, to RYM at uh, down at Panama City Beach, and for half the week, the double red flags were up, which means like you legally can't go in the water, I guess. And the waves weren't that big, right? The issue was the current underneath the water, right? And if you've ever been caught in a riptide before, um, yeah, like not a fun thing to have happen to you. Um, you have to like swim out and around or out and around. You. It's just like not a fun experience. There's so much panic, so much despair, right? You feel like genuinely helpless. Um, and the more you struggle, the more tired you get, and it seems like the farther down you go, that is what Jonah is talking about here. That like utter sense of despair and helplessness is where we are at this point before Jonah gets swallowed by the fish. He's in the water, and uh, things are not, not going super well. Um, so then Jonah moves on to verse four and says, then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. So there's like a little, there's a little shift here halfway through verse four, right? Verses two and three are pretty desperate, right? The billows, the currents, they're crashing down on me. We have these very graphic descriptions of uh, what Jonah's going through. And yet halfway through verse four, there's this little word, yet. And this is a sort of hinge point for this section in verses 2 through 4. This is where Jonah starts to make a turn, right? He comes around a corner, and there's no longer despair. He says, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. Now, this is probably hard for us to get today because the temple doesn't occupy a super central place in our lives the way it did for the Israelites in 800 BC, give or take a few years. Remember, Jonah was just talking about being dragged to Sheol, being dragged away from the presence of God, dragged away to the place of the dead. Um, and then here, just two verses later, one verse later, he says, I shall again look upon your holy temple. And the temple is not just a building for Jonah. This is literally where the presence of God lives in ancient Israel, right? After the garden and before Pentecost, the only way that the Israelites, that God's people, could meet with God, could experience his presence, was in the temple, right? And so Jonah's having this experience here in verses 2 through 4 of, on the one hand, feeling dragged away 
and then praying, seeking the Lord, and being brought back into God's presence, right? Understanding that at some point, he will look upon the temple again. He'll be restored, and that there is a sort of glimmer of hope for Jonah amidst all of this despair. Um, and so, the way, the sort of rhythm of verses 2 through 4 dictates the rest of the chapter. This is essentially a psalm. Um, these ten verses, uh, you could probably pick them up, transplant them into the book of Psalms and not have any issue at all um, because they do pretty much the same thing. They use a lot of, they use a lot of the same language. The poetic patterns are very similar. For example, verses 2 through 4 set a certain tone. There's bleakness that leads to hope eventually, as we'll see in a second. Verses 5 and 6 do a similar thing. And then verse 7 is a sort of microcosm of those things as well. Um, and so this is a sort of rhythm that will run through all of chapter 2, that there is some bleakness that gives way to light. So here, let's read verses 5 and 6 real quick. We'll keep on trucking along. Um, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. So, uh, yeah, happy Sunday. Um, we have, especially at the end of verse 5 and then in verse 6, like, just listen to this for a second. Like, the deep surrounded me. Okay, fair enough. Weeds were wrapped about my head. Like, just try to picture that. You're in dark, dark water, seaweed wrapped around your head. You can't see to begin with. Now there's seaweed on your head. This is not a good situation. And then, at the roots of the mountains, what Jonah's literally talking about here is like at the ocean floor where the mountains come up from, like this is where he's headed. This is not, not a good situation at all. And yet, in verse 6, we have the same word, yet, right? Jonah is trying to impress upon us that the story doesn't end here. The story doesn't end with weeds wrapped around our head. It doesn't end with us hurtling toward the bottom of the sea. He says, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. And so we have here another example of this theme that runs throughout Jonah chapter 2, which is, God having the authority and the power to do whatever he wills. Having the authority and the power to throw Jonah into the sea, to send him hurtling down toward the fish, and then in verse 6, having the authority and the power to save Jonah, to bring his life up from the pit, and to redeem him, to save him from this super, super dire situation. Okay, so here we have another example again. Bleakness. Light, despair, hope, really bad stuff, salvation, right? This is interesting because as we see like very low lows and very high highs, the thing that becomes ever clearer is that only God can bridge the gap between these two things. Only God can take Jonah, can take us from a position of bleakness and despair to a life of hope and joy. Um, we'll develop that a little more later. So, 
this is where we're at, heading into verse 7. And verse 7, again, is very similar to 2 through 4, and then 5 and 6. And we have verse 7, which is sort of like the capstone of this section of chapter 2. We had to like study these things called sonnets in grade school, these poems, and they're like three quatrains and a couplet. So there's three, four line stanzas, and then a couplet at the bottom. And the couplet is sort of where the tension releases, right? The poet is working for 12 lines to build and build and build this anticipation, and then the couplet sort of releases it all. And this verse 7 we might think of as the last quatrain before Jonah really um, just sort of does his thing and releases a lot of this tension. So verse 7 reads like this. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. and My prayer came to you into your holy temple. So there starts to be a sustained shift here, right? My prayer comes to God in his holy temple Again, we have this motif of, God, of Jonah being taken from Sheol, the place of the dead, away from God's presence and being brought into God's presence to see the temple, to have his prayers rise to the presence of God. Um, and then based on, obviously, what we read in verse 6, that God brought up Jonah's life from the pit, um, that Jonah's prayers are heard by God. Um, this is probably the apex of Jonah's hopelessness right here. He says, when my life was fainting away, like literally at the moment of death. Have you guys seen Avengers Infinity War? Maybe with your kids? Yeah, if you haven't, like I don't really feel bad about spoiling this because you had two years. So um, (laughs) at the end of the movie, Thanos snaps his fingers, right? He's the villain who's going to get rid of half of the universe's population because... There are too many people, not enough resources. And so he snaps his fingers and everybody starts to disintegrate, right? And so, like, this is exactly what we're working with here for Jonah, right? You have Spider-Man and Avengers saying, Mr. Stark, I don't feel so good, right? And then, like, iron filings, his whole body just floats away. This is sort of what Jonah is dealing with. Like, he feels like he is at the precipice of death. Like, this dude, it's over. Not only is he not going to make it to Nineveh, he's like probably not going to make it to the surface of the water. And so, again, Jonah is saved from a dire situation by the strong hand of the God of the Bible. Um, so, we go from bleakness to hope, darkness to light yet again. Um, as we head into verses 8 and 9... We read these words, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Um, This is like probably the first time in the whole book of Jonah where he does something that normal prophets do. Jonah's, this book is not like a standard prophetic book. Um... It opens in the first verse, like all the prophets do. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Right? The word of the Lord came to Isaiah during the reign of whoever. This happens pretty standardly. And then, from then on, we don't really see any prophecy. And even for the rest of the book, Jonah's actual prophecy takes up a pretty small, comparatively, part of chapter 3. 
what is prophetic about Jonah, in addition to his prophecy, is his life, is his story. Um, and this is probably the first place where Jonah sort of falls into the prophetic line, right? Prophets make a big deal, especially Isaiah and Jeremiah, about um, generally just like making fun of the idols of other nations, right? They are very quick to say, you made these gods. These gods didn't make you. You crafted them with your own hands out of the wood that you chopped down from your own backyard. They don't talk. They don't do anything. They're not powerful. The, you know, like we have this famous episode in First and Second Kings where um, Elijah is facing off against the Baal worshippers, and Elijah is like running around saying, "I'll call down fire on this statue. Y'all do the same, and we'll see how it goes." And uh, as if that's not hard enough, Elisha douses his in water, and then, you know, Yahweh, the God of Israel, lights that statue on fire. And the Baal worshippers, even though there are many, many more of them, uh, and they don't have water on their statue, Baal is powerless to compete with the God of the Bible, right? So this is what Jonah is saying here. Um, Jonah worships and was saved by the one true God who has the power and authority to save his people, to do what he wills be done. Um, interestingly, we have a, an episode here in verse 9 that parallels the episode that Jonah had with the sailors in chapter 1. If you remember, um, Jonah comes up to the deck, they have their little powwow, Jonah prays, and then... Um, the sailors essentially like get converted, right? Like they become Yahweh worshipers and um, they abandon all their false gods and they make vows, right? Presumably to go to the temple and offer sacrifices and they worship the one true God. And here is Jonah having his own little transformation, his own little sailor's moment on the top of the boat where he says, I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This verse ends with a lot of emphasis. There's an exclamation point. Um, Jonah doesn't use a generic name for God. He uses God's actual name that was given to Moses in Exodus. Um, there's a lot of fanfare at the end of verse 9, and fittingly so, right? I mean... The only way, one of the only ways that you can really understand the greatness of God, the power of God, and the goodness of God is if you've been through this terrible, desperate experience, right? Do you guys like? Do you guys feel that way? Like you will, you come out of these really, really hard seasons of life with a greater appreciation for God's providence, for God's care for you, um, and for God's love for you that maybe would not happen. Right, um, or are we to sacrifice some tough stuff. So um, we come to the end of Jonah 2, uh, where the Lord speaks to the fish, and the fish vomits Jonah out. And again, here we have the Lord speaking to the fish, and the fish vomiting Jonah out. Right, God again has the power and authority to save Jonah and to do what He wills. Right, it's not the fish just sort of like laissez-faire vomiting up. Jonah. He only does that because God tells him to. Um, 
as we sort of approach the end of Jonah, I think it's easy to read this chapter especially, or the book of Jonah, and see Jonah as a parallel to Israel. Right? Jonah is called to go to the Gentiles in Nineveh, be a light to them, bring them to God, and he doesn't, he fails, he runs away, just as Israel did in the Old Testament. They were given this blessing through Abraham. The idea was to bring the Gentiles into the fold. They decidedly did not do that. Um, But I think when we read Jonah, we should not see Israel. We should see, in the person of Jonah, Nineveh, right? Jonah is Nineveh. He is the one who has wrong ideas about God. He's the one who um, is struggling to understand how things are going. He is the one who's caught in this sin and rebellion against the Lord. And he is the one who has to be brought back to God. And by extension, we are Nineveh in general. So um, that's what we have for chapter 2. I have a few points of application, and then we will hopefully have some time for questions. Jonah, I think, has a lot to say to us in Birmingham in 2019, even if we're not right in Gath Heifer in 800 B.C. Um, we learn a lot about God in Jonah. We learn that he is sovereign, that he controls providentially everything that happens on this earth. Right? Nothing catches God by surprise, not even a whale eating a full-grown human man. Um, we also, at the same time learn that we are sinful, right? As we see ourselves in Jonah, as we see ourselves in Nineveh, um, this is a rather uncomfortable look in the mirror, right? We can all, I think, relate to Jonah's experience of knowing what the Lord would have us do and then turning and literally boarding a boat in the other direction. Um, That's certainly an experience I've had before. So um, when it comes to applying Jonah 2 to our lives, There are a number of things we can say. I've taken some of these from John Piper. Some of them are helpful. Some of them weren't. So I've just like chosen a few that I thought might be good. Um, He says, first, in Jonah, we learn that God answers us in spite of our guilt. Right? Jonah is very much guilty. Like he is rebelling against God. He is running from the Lord. And yet, God is still zealous to protect him. Right? God is still answering his prayers. God is still... Uh, watching out for Jonah, God still has his powerful right arm extended toward Jonah, even though Jonah has not made a play to do anything, really, that God's asked him to do. Um, second, God answers us in spite of his judgment, right? Um, even in the midst of God's disciplining of Jonah by casting him into the water, um, God is still there with Jonah, answering him uh, and providing for him. Um, also, and I think this is just super crucial um, and helpful, at least for me, is that God answers and delivers us from seemingly impossible circumstances. Um, if you ha- like, We've all been places, and if you haven't, we probably will, where um, we might use adjectives that Jonah uses to describe our own life situation, right? I'm sure there have been times in your life where you would say, like, it feels like weeds are wrapped around my head, like I'm being dragged down to the bottom of the sea, right? Um, Nothing is going right, whether that's, you know, issues on a number of fronts. Even still, God is powerful over those things, 
has authority over those things, and ultimately is a good God in spite of those things. Um, what's more, God answers us in stages sometimes, not always all at once, right? Um, Jonah doesn't walk off the boat and get teleported to Nineveh. He gets thrown into the sea, swallowed by a fish, and this is the deliverance, right? It's sort of a piecewise function that he ultimately ends up back on the land, but has to make a quick pit stop in the belly of a fish and in the uh, the raging sea before he can do that. And um, I think that's crucial for us, and I think something that's especially important as we like live with and minister to students of various ages, right, or as we are students of various ages, is to understand that... Um, there's a lot there. There are heavy burdens, right? Socially, performance-wise, um, to be friends with the right people, to wear the right clothes, to do the right stuff, and then also to get certain grades in school to perform in a certain way on the field. And those are heavy burdens, right? In addition to anything else that your students might be going through, whether it's um, a divorce or a grandparent who's sick or anything else, these are all heavy, heavy burdens for us to bear. For, you know, much less um, our students, and this is maybe a helpful truth to keep in mind, that God, even if he doesn't solve problems all at once, is working and is putting pieces in place um, to ultimately have solved the problem, right? And even if, um, right, our grandfather with Alzheimer's is not healed on this side of eternity, there will be a day when God makes everything right. Um, and so there's some hope in that. And then finally, God answers us in order to win our undivided loyalty and thanks and to glorify himself. Right? This chapter ends with Jonah saying, I will sacrifice to the Lord with a voice of thanksgiving. Salvation belongs to him alone. There's no room in Jonah's vocabulary or in, uh, in God's vocabulary for another um, another object of affection in an ultimate sense. Um, God is the one true God and, uh, you know, deserves to be glorified as such. So that's all I have. We have about five or ten minutes for questions or comments, if you guys have any. Is there anything in the Hebrew of this that stood out to you yeah, um, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I, so the word that Jonah uses for steadfast love in verse 8 is a word that is only ever used with God as the subject. Like, it, the word is hesed, and it means like literally covenant love or loyal love. Um, and I think like when we read this passage, when I read this passage, it's helpful to know that God's love is tied to himself, to his promise to us that won't ever change. Um, especially as you read Jonah and realize, like, this dude, like myself, has done nothing to deserve God's love, and yet God has still tethered himself to Jonah mercifully and graciously. I have a question for you that might seem a little off point, but I don't sure. think so. So, um, foundational to this experience of Jonah is... Jonah's calling and his response to that calling. Mm -hmm. 
And um, so as a, are you still in seminary? I am, yes, sir. So as a seminary student and a, and a person who I assume has, a, has been called, and you're, you're talking to a group of you know, 30, 50 people who may or may not have, have experienced such a call, and there may have. Sure. Talk to me a little bit about what you've seen in your experience about God's calling on normal, ordinary, yeah. 21st century Christian's life, and how you've seen, and I, I want to focus on how you've seen either directly or indirectly people not responding to that calling, yeah. and, and a little bit about that. For sure. So, um, that's a really good question. I think my sense is that the further we get into the 21st century, um, the more specialized work becomes, especially. Um, the more compartmentalized, I think, our lives as Western Christians become. Does that make sense? So, um, we work farther from our homes now. Uh, we have less to do. at our Like, I paid some dude to, like, cut my grass the other day because I was out of town. You know, whereas in the past, like, that's something I would have just done myself. Um... All that to say, I think we are probably in a place where it's a little bit hard to figure out how to take your calling as a Christian into the accountancy office or into the law practice or into the hospital or, you know, into, you know, wherever you work. I think part of the situation is maybe like figuring out how we can become whole people in a way that's like the same person who is at work is at home, the same person who is at home and at work is the father of their kids. Does that make sense? Like, I think part of the issue is like, okay, so Abraham Kuyper, who was a Dutch guy in the early 1900s, says that there's not a single square inch of the whole universe over which Christ does not shout, that's mine. And I think with that in mind, there's a way to be a Christian accountant, a Christian lawyer, a Christian doctor or nurse, or um, a Christian newspaper columnist, uh, and to do that in a way that is distinctly God-glorifying and God-honoring uh, in a way that a secular person or a humanist or an atheist just cannot. In a way to, to be fulfilled in that work, to know that you're working heartily as unto the Lord, um, especially since work is not an object of the fall. Like, work did not come after Genesis 3. Work was the first thing that Adam and Eve were told to do. And it was a good thing, right? It wasn't until the fall that work became difficult and be done by the sweat of their brow. Does that make? Does that answer your question, or is that just a lot of words? Yeah. We're really talking about how do you integrate, fully integrate, yeah. your faith life. If God has, in fact, created us and all of creation sure. for a purpose, then, you know, one of the things that you know, I've been on a 35-year struggle with this. Sure. And, um, uh, then, therefore, you can make the, the point that what you do really matters, and you can either overtly and actively walk away from that calling. Yeah. Or passively, right. inadvertently, yeah. walk away from it. Yeah. And either way, you're walking away from God's calling on your life. Sure. It seems like it's a critically important uh, part of all of our... Uh, our, uh, you know, our, we have to work through, uh, and it's right here is the premise of the, of the whole story. Of yeah, yeah, for sure. What that's, is your calling, and how do you respond to that? Yeah, and that's a good word, for sure. Um, I think that makes a ton of sense, especially probably to us, like our 
folks our age have this like super big crisis of vocation. Like, what is God's will for my life? You know, and the idea is that there's some like, you know, script out there that's like, I have to to live in a one-to-one correspondence with this script. The problem is I can't see the script. I can't read it. I don't know what it means. And so like, should I marry this person or that? Like, this is like Hannah B's bachelorette season in a nutshell right here. It's like a couple weeks ago, she said like, what if I send Luke home and I'm supposed to be with Luke? I think there's a similar crisis that are like, that we probably have in terms of like, what if I'm supposed to do this job and I don't? And like, then I live for 70 years, just totally unfulfilled across the entire spectrum of my life, you know? I think the great thing about Jonah to that point is that it's the story of him being called and he doesn't follow yeah. what God says, but that God continues to pursue. For sure. And so that idea that it's it's a continued yeah, story. Yeah, definitely. And to bring him around and it's ultimately done. Yeah, the work for of sure. The is ultimately done. Yeah. It's not that I made the wrong choice. No. God's stuff didn't happen the way it was supposed to. Like, no. Yeah. It was still ultimately Yeah, done. for sure. Wonder what would have happened if he actually made it. Yeah, for sure. Or like <laughs> what he was actually saved. I mean, as bad yeah. as being thrown into the no, yeah. I have a feeling Tarshish would have been worse. Yeah. To comment further on the question just asked, even though eventually Jonah does go and do what he's told, and very successfully, as a matter of fact. The very at, at the end of the story, God has to twice ask Jonah, "Well, is it wise for you to disagree with me?" Yeah, <laughs> uh, for and, sure. And Jonah stands up and says, "But I don't like it." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It is interesting that in verse nine, Jonah says, "Salvation belongs to the Lord," and it's a praise, and then it's that very thing that salvation belongs to the Lord that will frustrate him to no end mm-hmm. in chapter four. Don't so we think sometimes that somebody else might do it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It might get done. Yeah. So if we wanted to take away a word from your teaching today, might, yeah. we, might we say to ourselves, why don't we examine today what God might be calling us to do today sure. in Birmingham, Alabama, yeah. and see if we might be available and obedient to that calling and a little baby step as right. to you know, what am I going to do the rest of my life? Yeah, I think that's a super good word. I, you know, and that compartmentalizes it to a place where it's like you're contributing to something bigger, right? This calling on your whole life, but it's maybe not so overwhelming. That's what Henry Blackerby says. He says, God is at work in the world today. Why don't you open your eyes, see what he's doing around you, and see if you can join in in that work. Yeah. It makes it a little bit easier to think of it. Yeah, for sure. It takes a lot of the pressure off of us. Yeah, that's good. I just think in addition to that, what I find so freeing is that God isn't asking us to open our eyes, find where he's working, and find our calling. That he promises that as long as we stay in his word and stay in communion with him and stay as his child, he's going to show us. And I love how Jonah was taking a nap when God got him. Yeah. He wasn't even staying in his word. He was in the bottom of a ship taking a nap. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And God's like, I'm cute, but you're not going to just rub up my Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's too important that you kept saying there was nothing that Jonah did. He yeah. Wasn't punching the no, for sure. Or doing anything. Right. 
it was still all God. Yeah, yeah, from start to finish, Jonah is like literally sitting still, right? And that's uh, that's the gospel right there, is like God not giving Jonah a ladder up out of the boat or a ladder up out of the fish, but God doing everything that Jonah needed done, right? Well, it's 10.50, so let's pray, and then I'll uh, let you guys roll. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for um, showing us who you are in Jonah, what you're doing for us and in our lives. Um, Lord, we ask that you would help us to keep in mind uh, your gracious calling on us and um, your gracious salvation of us, for uh, that truly does belong to you. In your Son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.